chapter four. Acts chapter four. So you're going to want to turn there. As we try to get a handle on this section, I want you to envision for a minute somebody who is keenly involved in this issue and how they might be responding. Let's see if we can perhaps picture that. Father, today I stand before you struggling with fear. In the midst of recognizing your faith that continues to speak over and over and over again in my life. Father, I'm a fisherman. And yet you've made me one who is to speak to the masses. There are thousands and thousands of people gathered here to hear your words. And I find myself feeling so inadequate. We have become one. What an amazing thing. Your spirit gathered us together and we're called one in one accord. We find ourselves speaking together, declaring the glory of your son in the midst of a time in which so many people don't understand. The Jewish priests come against us. The people themselves in the midst of this oneness are not sure how to handle it, how to deal with it. There's Joseph. We call him Barnabas now, Lord. You know, he's such an encourager. He consoles us. He cares for us. He loves us. He gave everything he had. And others saw that and they were so impressed that they wanted to be just like him, but they weren't really willing to be like him. They conspired against you. They, they tried to fool you. They somehow thought you weren't listening in the midst of their decision making about their so-called generosity when really it was simply hypocrisy. They didn't want to give. They wanted to gain. They weren't involved in generosity, but they were involved in greed. And you chose me to declare to them that truth, and that was so difficult. Father, I had no idea that you were going to cause him to die, that he would fall at my feet in the midst of the colonnade and all those thousands of people struck with fear. And I was fearful myself. I thought, oh, Lord, this didn't even happen when we were with you. And yet now you call us to truth. No more lies. You demand love. I feel so inadequate. How can I speak? And yet as you gathered me together and I walked with those soldiers and fear began to distribute itself on my shoulders and I began to tremble. But then something happened, Father, unlike the last time. As I found myself standing before Annas and Caiaphas, that high priest, as he spoke to you, then he spoke to me, and you gave me words, oh Lord, words. I never expected those words. Only in the name of Jesus is there salvation. There is no other name. We must obey God, not men. They were not my words. Where did they come from? They're words that I know will be echoed for thousands of years. Because somehow you chose to use me. Oh, Lord, I am frightened. I'm not afraid of them. I'm not scared of death anymore, but I'm frightened that I might say the wrong thing. That as I try to teach your word. 
It would come out as something other than your word. That I would say things that are untrue. That I would present things in such a way that they would not hear your voice. Father, take away my fear. Replace it with faith. Teach me as I sit before you again and again, hour after hour after hour, trying to replace my feeble thoughts with yours. Oh, my God. You have called me here for this time so that I might share through my brokenness your wonder. Who am I? How amazing that you would pull us together and remind us once again that we're called to serve, not to be served. We're called to be pruned, not just to grow. We're called to be, what was that word that, that Luke used the other day? Ecclesia, the church. For the first time, Father, we're called your church. New words that I think, Lord, will become words that people thousands of years from now, well, maybe you'll come back before then. I think you will. But if you don't, they'll hear the word church. And they'll think, Jesus, what an amazing God you are. Work in me. Teach me your truth as I study. Help me, Lord. I'm just a fisherman. I'm just a fisherman. Acts chapter 4. We see Peter presented in such a way that sometimes we think of him as a pope. But the reality is, he's a man who's been put into a position that he did not desire, that he no longer wanted whatsoever. A man who no longer desired to be a leader, but wanted to be a follower. But he did what God directed him to do at the time in which God directed him to do it. There are at least three different stories as you walk through this section of Scripture that should cause you to think, to wonder, hopefully even to comprehend what God is doing. Uh, The first story is Acts chapter 4. It starts verses 32. And in this story, it uses this term that Luke loves. He's going to use it now and again and again and again, some 23 different times in the book of Acts. It's It's a word, homothumadon. Okay, and, it, and it simply means with one voice or in one accord, or we would use the term all together now. Okay? That was the word he keeps It's just it's incredible. They were all together as one, one voice, one declaration. When people poked them, they cried out, Jesus. When people slammed them, they cried out, how wonderful God is. There is no other name given, even in heaven, by which you can be saved, simply by the name of Jesus. They were mega-graced. They were over-the-top united. They found themselves experiencing the wonder of God in amazing, incredible, glorious ways. They were 
in that kind of sukasa mikasa phase. Okay? Your house is my house. My house is your house. There were no locks. They just came together and whatever they had, they shared with one another. And it says that there was nobody with any need. Everybody's need was met completely, fully, entirely. They were one. And, and Joseph, whose new name was Barnabas, was the epitome of this unity. He owns a field and he sells it. And it says he lays it at the apostles' feet. And that becomes the norm for the church. And they find themselves gathered together around Solomon's colony. Let's, let's take a look at that. This Solomon's colony, which is this huge area outside the temple where even Gentiles were allowed to come together. And they would meet together declaring the reality of Jesus. And then people would lay at the apostles' feet. You know, it's not multiple terms. It's not at Peter's feet. It's all the apostles. They bring their things together with them and they lay them down at their feet and say, this is for those in need. This is to meet the needs of anybody who has a need. You can see how large the area is. It's actually, it's huge. But by now we have something like 5,000 people coming together. It is the only church. There is no other place to go. This is it. You come to hear the apostles teaching. You come to pray. You come to meet one another's needs. And then as you would leave, you'd leave together, going house to house, sharing what God had done. They weren't necessarily selling their homes. They were selling everything they had extra. They were selling their boats. They were selling their cars. They were doing whatever they needed to meet the needs of people who might be struggling or hurting so that there were no poor among them. They were all one. But in the midst of this, we find what we always find. The struggle of wanting to be something that we aren't. The struggle of wanting to be seen something that we aren't. And so... Ananias and Sapphira show up. Ananias, the word means man graced by God. And Sapphira, we get the term sapphire. She's the one with the light of God. And these two come forward and they've decided to try to deceive the church in relationship to what they were giving. Let's read it together. We're in Acts I'm trying to find my spot here because I can't see very well anymore since they redid my eyes. (laughs) And I had down five there. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also set aside a piece of property they sold. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. The word kept back here is nofiso. And it's the same word that we use in Joshua chapter 7. Those of you who remember that section there of Joshua people. That was the, the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 2. And in that particular head says he kept back what was God. He stole from God and he hid it under his tent. The result of that sin of Achan was that hundreds, even thousands of Israelites were killed in battle because they were not responsive to God. Here it says they tried to set aside something that was not theirs to keep for themselves. All right? So that's kind of the picture of the idea that he's trying to throw out to us here. He says, Ananias, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? Where previously we see Joseph filled with the Holy Spirit giving and getting a new name, Barnabas. Ananias says, Satan has filled your heart. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've kept for yourself some of the money that you receive for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied to human beings. You've lied to God. In the midst of this discussion, you see Peter trying to get him to repent. Repent, fall forward. And he just stands there in denial. Ananias heard it and he fell down. Not in repentance, but in death. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. I'll bet. That's, that's, that's the new statement of, you know, people that tell you, well, if I go to church, I might get hit by lightning. You know, they use that term. <laughs> Maybe this is where it came from. <laughs> Maybe they read this section of scripture and went, oh, I don't want to go in there. Well, they weren't the only ones. It says fear came upon the whole community. And they said, well, we, want to be, we don't want to be involved in that grouping anymore. We're going to, if we're not part of the church, we're not going to come in there. Because we're afraid of what may happen. There's a lot of misconstruction concerning what took place as a result of Ananias' hypocrisy and what took place here. Then it says about three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. And Peter turns to her and he says, hey, I want to give you a chance to turn things around here. Did you... Give everything to God as you said it was. When you sold that land, you said, we're giving everything to God. Everything we sold, we want to honor God with this. And you're laying, Is that what you did? And she said, what? Yeah, yeah. So we did. Going, My goodness. Your husband came in and God caused him to die. And now you're going to join him. And she dies. Peter must have been incredibly shocked at how all this had come to place. After it's done, he's going, what's going on here? This place of praise and worship and glory to God and wonderful things happening and people being healed and just great things happening. Now it's become a place of death. Because people tried in this case to, to dishonor God, to, to cause his church to become corrupted. He said, and God would not allow that in the beginning. He said, right now, maybe later, how, how many of you have said you gave something or intimidated, you know, intimated that you gave something to the church or you put money in? The, I, you, you acted like maybe you did and, and you really didn't. How many of you have done that? Well, I see a few honest people. Yeah. Now, be careful. Be careful. Because I'd raise my hand. People, I, I people all say, oh, pastor, you know, I always tithe. I said, really? Want me to check your records? I can check. Why would you tell me that? Why would you? I, I've had people come to me, well, you know, you know, this person here, you've got to be very careful because they give so much to the church. I said, 
How would you know what they give to the church? And what difference does that make? What does that have to do with anything? You see, it's easy for us to condemn these two, and yet in the midst of it, I find myself going, you know, Lord, wow. If you continued to use that method in the church today, I wonder. I think we have a lot smaller churches, don't you? I got this feeling. Wow, Lord. Wow. It says, And the apostles began to perform many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers. They used to meet at Solomon's Colonnade. And no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, and they were added to their number. And as a result, people started bringing the sick into the streets and laid them in beds and mats. They were afraid to come into Solomon's colonnade, even with their sick. They were afraid to go in there, afraid of what might happen. And so they waited for Peter and the other apostles to come out and lay hands on them. And many of them, most of them, all of them, were healed. You see this? incredibly powerful manifestation of God's spirit in every way and manner. And that's why there was great fear because there was recognition that, oh, God would pour out his spirit in miraculous manner. He would also demand miraculous responses of his people. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. All things one, the church united. And then we saw, well, all things not exactly one was to fire. The church was divided. We saw this sin begin to permeate itself in it. And we said, well, what happened here? Jesus spoke more on the issue of greed and generosity than he did on anything else. You realize that? He spoke more about money and the use of it than anything else. It was his number one topic because it's our number one struggle. It's the difficulty we have in our life. I like the way Paul put it in Timothy. He said this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but instead put their hope in God. Can you say that for me? Say, put their hope in God. I didn't hear it. Put their hope in God. You see, we tend to start putting our hope in our riches. That's the problem of wealth. We begin to think, if I have enough money, I'll be okay. See, all the, all the commercials, I love the commercials on retirement. Do you really have enough? Well, how much is enough? I'll give you the answer, just a little bit more. No matter how much you have, it's just a little bit more. It's this, it's this struggle of greed. If I have a million, I need two. If I have a hundred, I need a thousand. Whatever it is, I just need a little bit more because I began to put my hope in riches and not in God who provides Richly. You see, wholeness of life, the term we use, shalom, is about the presence of God, not God's presence. It's about the presence of God, not God's presence. He brings contentment with our content. Someone said it's only the heavenly minded who tend to do much earthly good. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that the heavenly minded tend to put their hope in God, not in riches. So they easily give up 
those things so that others might gain what God desires to give through them. A great mantra I would give you. And it's something you can work over and over in terms of this. And here's the mantra. I put my hope in God, the source who richly provides. Not riches, the source that will not deliver. I put my hope in God, the one who richly provides. Not in riches, who will never deliver. Not in riches, the source that will not deliver. Getting a picture, that, that's, that's the cry we need to have in our life on a regular basis, or else you'll find yourself trying to put your hope in stuff. I'll be okay as long as I have this. No, you won't. No, you won't. That's why Jesus told this story of the Good Samaritan. I always love this story. And in this story, we all know this story. Guy falls in the road, gets attacked by robbers. They take everything he had. Priest walks by, says, sorry, buddy, have a good day. Prays for him, maybe, I don't know. Goes on down the road. Good Samaritan, he shows up, sees him, grabs him, binds his wounds, takes him over to the doctor, puts him in the inn, says, I'll pay for him for the time that he's here. Doc, I'll pay for you, get the whole thing done here. And Jesus says, who is your neighbor? And he says, the Good Samaritan was your neighbor. This person that you thought, would never help you as the one who was your neighbor. He's the one who chose to respond to you. See, they all had a philosophy in life. The thief had a philosophy. His philosophy was this. What's yours is mine. If I want it, I'll take it. That's the philosophy of the thief. The philosophy of the religious was different. His was what's mine is mine. And if you need it, sorry. What's mine is mine. And if you need it, sorry. But the Christians cry, the one who's called to serve, his philosophy, his direction is what's mine is yours. And if you need it, you can have it. What's mine is yours. And if you need it, you can have it. Do you know how hard that is to do if you have riches? Do you know how difficult that is to do if you find yourself with a large amount of income? When you're making $10 a week, it's easy to tithe to give 10% to God because it's only a buck. When you're making a million dollars a week, what happened? What happened? Greed set in and found us unwilling to distribute in the manner in which God would tell us to distribute. It's odd. It's weird. But that's exactly what happens. As the pastor once said to the farmer who continued to grow in his ability and got so many goods in his, he got to the place where he was literally making six to eight million dollars a year. He was no longer giving to the church. And the pastor went and shared with him. And he said, you know what? While you're making so little, you, you gave regularly. You are wonderful. And now you're not giving anything. What's going on? And he said, well, I've just gotten so much now that I have to continue to put it back in. The pastor said, you know, I'm going to pray that God will begin to diminish your riches so that you're able to give more. That should be our prayer one for another, that we can respond appropriately to God and what he has given. Wow. And we continue on with the story. You see, the world turns to us and asks us, how much do you give? And God says, how much are you keeping? The world says, what do you own? And God says, what are you doing with it? 
that's the story of generosity versus greed, about transparency and trust, about hypocrisy and truth. And the church is built on grace and generosity and transparency and truth and love and loyalty. There to be a light in the darkness. And so it moves to the second story. It says, in the midst of this sudden declaration of their light, of their generosity, of their overwhelming response, thousands and thousands of people being brought in on a regular basis. And it says, the Sadducees found themselves jealous and they sent the guards after Peter again for the second time. And he finds himself back in jail. And as usual, they pick him up a little later in the day so they can keep him all night long to make him struggle. So he's staying in the jail that night. But this time, unlike the last time, it says an angel shows up and lets him loose. And they walk out. And that morning, they find themselves back at the temple at Solomon's Colonnade preaching the truth of who God is. It says that Ananias and Sapphira, who come together, Annas and Sapphira, excuse me, Annas comes together. I said Sapphira, then I said Caiaphas. That's interesting. Slip going on there. Okay, so Annas and Caiaphas, who are the high priest and the real high priest, they're related to one another, father and son-in-law in this particular case. As they reach for him, they say, well, no, go bring these guys back. And they find out they're not in the jail. They're amazed by it, but nobody ever mentions that in the story. How'd they ever get out of there? They don't know, but they said they're back preaching again. They bring them in and they tell them, you must stop doing this. Stop preaching this truth about who Jesus is and what goes on. They didn't call it truth, but we know that. And Peter turns to him and gives that wonderful declaration where the previous time he had said, there's salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. This time he says, we must obey what? God rather than men. We're supposed to obey God or men. We're going we're gonna to do what God tells us to do regardless of what you tell us to do. And he said they got so angry they were ready to kill him. And Gamaliel stands up and says, set the guys aside and he gathers them all together and says, look, here's the problem. You need to understand something. If this is really from God and you go against it, you're going to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. He doesn't say that, but that's, they're aware of it. God's going to be in the midst of this, and you're going to find yourself defeated. You don't want to do this. But if it's not of God, it's just going to fall apart anyway. Just let them go, and we'll watch it all fall into nothing. So they gather them back in, and they say, okay, no more teaching in Jesus' name. That's it. We're not going to lie to that anymore. They whip them. They send them out. And where do they go? Solomon's colonnade. To be with the thousands. To teach and preach in Jesus' name. He says, how wonderful it is an opportunity to declare the truth of who God is. And this time, they just back off and leave them alone. So you got this mixed emotions of fear and jealousy. The church is attracting on one end thousands and thousands of people. It begins to slow down a bit because of the fear that begins to happen as people recognize their own inadequacies before God. But then they're attacked from this jealousy by the Sadducees, the ruling group that were involved in Rome at this point in time. These are the ruling Jewish people who had political control and who did not desire to lose that control. In the midst of this persecution that was taking place, we find purpose. 
In the midst of this persecution, we find purpose. That was the next thing that we find over and over throughout Scripture is that God brings persecution and allows it within the church structure so that they might discover their purpose. To continue to declare the truth of who God was, of what Jesus had done, and of how people can respond to it. And so that's exactly what they do. My mind goes back to Joseph. And he finds himself, after his father dies, turning to his brothers and saying, Look, I know that you intended to harm me for evil. You threw me in the pit. You thought it was all over with. You were angry at me because of all that went on. But you know, God, all along, decided to make that into something incredibly good. So I'm not angry at you, even though you're responsible for what you did. Instead, I'm rejoicing in what God has done. And that's the cry of this persecution for the church that will continue on and force them out of Jerusalem, which is the next thing that will happen, by the way. The entire church will be forced out of Jerusalem because they've been unwilling to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, I want you to go not just in Jerusalem, but to Jerusalem and then to the ends of the earth. But they get stuck in Jerusalem. And it is only persecution that forces them out into the rest of the world. And a persecutor that will be the primary presenter of that. Then we have the last story that we deal with today. The last story, which I thought is, it's, it's quite an amazing one. In this particular case, it says, now the next chapter, there's a group of, of widows who are being or were receiving the distribution of, of food on a regular basis. One group was from a Greek group, and the other group was from a Hebrew-speaking group. The Hebrew-speaking group of widows were those who had always been in the, in the Jewish system and the structure. They'd become Christians, but they understood the background. They knew the Bible. They were aware of it. They spoke the true word of God. That's kind of how you put it. They spoke Hebrew. And then we had the Greek-speaking widows who did not have that background, who were new to the church, who were new to Christianity, who were new to to the whole concept of who God was, had no idea of what Jewishness meant, of what the Old Testament was, of what the, the ten words of God were. They knew none of these things. And they were seen as less than worthy of receiving. And in some way or manner, somehow, the distribution was done in such a way that they were receiving less than the others. It was almost like, okay, we only have 150 apples here today, and today we have uh, some uh, 110 women. So what we're going to do is going to give two to everybody except for... The others, and you're just not going to get anything today. Sorry about that. And the distribution would be done, first of all, with the Jewish people, and then it would go to the non-Jewish people. Something was going on in that manner. We don't know exactly what. And somehow there wasn't being any clear direction given. The church had begun to grow, and it wasn't really being managed or led in the manner that God wanted to be managed and led. The apostles were involved, understandably, in prayer and in teaching, these were men predominantly fishermen. They were men who did not know God's word that well. They'd walked with Jesus, but they were still struggling. They were always followers, not teachers. Now they found themselves teaching. And in the midst of that, they wanted not to teach incorrectly. So their cries were constantly on their knees. And then they would teach and then back to their knees. And they would teach. They said, we don't want to stop 
praying and studying. We have to spend this time together. So would you please pick out seven men that are worthy of giving you a direction that can do this? They're filled with the Holy Spirit that have integrity, that are honest. You know who they are. Just bring them up and make them the leaders of this entire group and let them feed the thousands of people. And the guy said, great idea. Seven were elected for the first time. They're put into an office, and the office that they're put in is the office of serving. So the first office for the church is not a teaching office. It's a serving office, interestingly enough. And it begins to grow and develop in the church as an unorganized group morphed together, not knowing what was going to happen and hoping that Jesus was going to come back any day. Kind of like me and my finals, my Greek test. The guys used to say in the back, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. <laughs> because we were struggling with the Greek context and the issues that were taking place there. So the church found themselves hoping Jesus would come back quickly, but the reality was... He still has not returned. He's still waiting for those that he's drawing in. So it says that Paul directs us to that truth. God sets aside for the church apostles, teachers, evangelists, you know, so that they might equip the church for the work of service. And we begin to see this development of organization within the church and management and structure that God desires to place within it. And that's, that's kind of the final thing that takes place here. The final directive that, that comes into play here. And the church finds itself managed and led instead of just unorganized and whatever works, works. Everybody's going to do the right thing. No, now it's more clearly directed by those who've been set up and directed and guided by God. So we have leaders here as well. We talk about leaderships and structures and there are multiple leaders in a variety of areas that have multiple pastors So here, I will speak one week and Eric will speak another week. And the reason for that is because we recognize there needs to be a sense of of shared leadership. That God desires for there to be shared leadership, both within the structure that we have here in terms of the pastors and also within the elders. So that we have leaders who are giving overall guidance to the church as God gives them direction. And that's the organization that God has set up for us to follow and to yield to and to understand that we're called to serve one another. See, we're all different in our callings and abilities in the areas that we lead or not lead. So Pastor Eric leads in some and I lead in some others. And we divide those up fairly well. He tends to be an initiator, kind of get it done guy. I'm more of a strategic, I want to, let's plan this all out, figure it out before we get into it. Eric's kind of a, let's just do it. I go, no, 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 pull back. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes Lear's a little slow, don't you? Know. So we work together to try and accomplish the task that God has set here. And the elders work with us to accomplish the task that God has set here. And that's the guidance and direction that we find here in the book of Acts that continues with us down. Perhaps the, the last thought that I'm bringing you today before we take our offering and share our prayer requests. And you may, as, you, as I give you these last thoughts, you may start writing down, ah, oh, here's my prayer request, Lord. This is something I really would like for you to do in my life in relationship to, to generosity, uh, in relationship to understanding where I'm at and persecution versus your purpose and direction for me, trusting you uh, in relationship to the uh, 
ministry that I should be involved in within the church areas, how I should be serving and giving. You might be writing some of those things down. There may be specific prayers that you have for people that you want to have happen. So write those down. Get that ready. And I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. They're going to come up here and begin to prepare us for this last song. As they do the song, we'll have a chance to do that. Um, My last thought is this. I can picture Jesus in his last gathering with his apostles. Remember, it was what we call the Last Supper. And he had sent them out to find the place that they were called to meet. He said, you're going to find this man with a jar of water. Really? That's it, Lord? Find a man with a jar. Yeah, you'll find a man with a jar of water. And when you see him, they tell him, hey, the master needs your room. And he's going to say, it's all been prepared, and he'll show you. So they go out, they find this guy with a jar of water. He says, yes, he takes them right to their room, and it's upstairs. It's all been furnished. It's all ready. It's a beautiful place, upper level. It's all set up for them. It says, then they all gathered together, and they began to go up, and they come to the stairs, and an interesting element within the stairs, and it's something we'll catch later, but we don't recognize, is that in every house, because of people wearing sandals, you've seen this with Pastor Eric with his sandals, it causes your feet to be kind of dirty and stinky. And you don't want him to put his foot on you. You're like, oh, man, put it down, dude, put it down. And when you're walking in camel dung all day, it's not good. So there's this sense of, wow, you need to clean your feet before you go up the stairs. But there was always a particular slave who was responsible for cleaning the feet. He would be the lowest of the low. They would often call him the crap boy. (laughs) He was the one who would clean the crap off your feet. And you would walk in and the basin would be there and he would have a towel on and you put your foot in the basin and he'd wash your foot, wipe it off nicely and put your other foot in and he'd wipe your foot up and clean it off. Then you would go to the honored place and he would stay down there as the lowliest of the low. But today as the men began to walk in and get ready to go to this last supper, There's no crap boy. There's just the basin and the towel. And they see it and they go, I'm not going to do that. I'm one of the 12. And so they walk away and they walk up the stairs. One by one, they see the basin, they see the towel, they walk up the stairs. One by one by one. Until Jesus walks in and he sees it. I'm sure he just shook his head. He thought, all these years, and they still don't get it. So he goes up the stairs, and he must have carried the basin with him. He set it down, set the towel down, and he walks over and he begins to share with these men. declaration of the Last Supper and the wonder of who he was. And then he stops in the midst of his discussion and he walks over to the basin 
And he puts the towel on his shoulder. And he walks to the first apostle, Judas. And he washes his feet. And he cleans the crap off it. And he dries his foot. And then he walks and moves to the next. And one by one, he moves along and he gets to Peter and Peter says, Oh, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. He said, Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you can never be a part of who I am. And Peter says, as he always does, Well, wash all of me, Lord. Jesus is going, Oh, come on, Peter. Just give me your feet. And he washes his feet and Peter is crying. I know it. He's crying and going, oh, Lord, I feel so bad. Why? Why? And Jesus stands to them and he says to you, I hope you understand what's just been done. You call me Lord, and rightly so, because I am. And yet, I, your master, have chosen to serve you, to clean your feet, because I came to serve Not to be served, but I remind you that the greatest one among you will be the one who chooses not to be served, but who chooses to serve. And with that, we close today's thoughts. God has called the church to serve truth, love, reality. To meet one another's needs as they're seen and shown. To be the good Samaritan. To be like Jesus. Hard to do. Incredibly hard to do. But that's your calling. Father, today we come to you and ask for your help as we seek your will. Allow us to become like you and to be willing to serve rather than to be served. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.